Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to Believe in Sparks, presented by betonline.ag. Please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes. We're available on your favorite directories, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, iHeart, and TuneIn. You can find us at Believe.com and at Believe Sports. Hey, everybody. So happy to have you with us on this episode of Believe in Sparks. As always, we have another special guest for you. And in the words of my dear friend and Sparks player, Tierra Ruffin-Pratt, this is a conversation and a topic that we will continue to discuss racism and inequality. Dr. Eddie Como serves as associate professor of higher education in the Graduate School of Education. He maintains an active research agenda that examines the college student experience with special attention on athletes and underrepresented students and how those experiences influence subsequent outcomes. Central to much of his work are the issues of access and equity. Eddie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about your background. Well, you know, before I took on this, this role as an academic, you know, I spent a, a lot of years uh, simply trying to, to understand what my purpose might be uh, in life. I spent a you know, number of years just playing sports, uh, but uh, of course, uh, delving in, uh, deep into the books and reading and kind of trying to really read the world on my own terms. And so, you know, with uh, a great supporting cast of, of my mother, my father, and uh, my siblings, you know, I, I eventually pursued a, a career in, in baseball, right, um, that afforded me an opportunity to, uh, you know, to attend a, a very uh, prestigious public institution, UC Berkeley, as, as both a student and an athlete. And, you know, in my uh, four years at Cal, you know, I was able to meet a, a lot of great people, uh, a lot of great mentors that I now lean on every now and then for advice, for guidance, for support. And, you know, I eventually graduated from UC Berkeley and then also was drafted uh, to play professionally um, with the Texas Rangers organization. And then after, you know, uh, several years playing, um, I ended up blowing out my Achilles tendon and tried to rehab to get myself back together. And, you know, the coaches uh, didn't think I was uh, good enough to play anymore. The coaches won out uh, in that regard. So I decided to move on to be a probing thinker, uh, to think about life after sport, uh, how I could make an impact impact uh, in the world in some way. And so, you know, I thought that would be as an academic. And so I pursued that route uh, and engaged the public as much as possible, uh, reading, writing, uh, serving as an activist to, to certainly protect the rights and well-being of, of athletes at all level. Um, and so this, it's been a, a long journey and a, in so, sort of uh, thinking about what I can do uh, to make my strongest impact. And, and for now, it's, it's sort of being a, a researcher an activist, an educator, and someone who's certainly passionate about uh, issues around equity and justice. I love all of that. And, and thank goodness that this is your purpose. There's no uh, coincidence that you were designed for this and chosen for this. Um, you're a contributor for Forbes. You've authored numerous peer-reviewed articles in the major journals for higher education and other related fields, including educational researcher, 
Journal of Higher Education, Journal of Intercollegiate Sport, Journal of College Student Development, Journal of Student Affairs Research and Practice, and Sociology of Sport Journal. And oh, by the way, you've published three books. I like what you said in terms of life after sport, and that's what a lot of these young athletes, they don't want to think too far ahead, but at the same time, they have to think ahead. Injury could take them out at any moment. Um, In what ways do you impress upon young people also not to overlook the educational piece that even makes them a stronger athlete? Right. That, that, that's a very good question. And, and part of that, that, that conversation is always about building a foundation, right? So that understanding that, you know, I want you to pursue your dream. I, I, I want you to, to be as good as you can and position yourself well for an opportunity uh, at the next level, but also being mindful that you can do both, right? That it shouldn't be an either or proposition. And so as much as you can prepare yourself and develop your academic talents, you can also equally think about how you can best develop your, your athletic prowess. And so that that is really the sort of central message that I take into any conversation with those who are pursuing both a career as a student and an athlete, that you can do both, that it is possible um, of course, it requires, um, you know, a, a sharp understanding of the landscape, how you can position yourself and, and understanding that you can't do it alone, right? It, it requires a support system that that's certainly advocating for you and supporting you even when uh, you may not achieve your, your, your best, you know, your best goals, um, your desired goals. And, and so, you know, I see, I see this as something as I kind of reflect on my own career, the opportunity to do both, but it was certainly... A, a process that played out with, with a, a pretty, pretty strong support system. And we'll be back after this. Yep, sports look different this year. And while you might not be at a game, you can still get in on all the action at Bet Online. From game spreads and totals to team player and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than any place online. And there's always the online casino because it never closes. Head over to betonline.ag today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag and sign up today. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. One of your many terrific articles uh, was titled Five Ways to Advance Racial Justice in College Sports. And I like the words that you used when you said you characterize this as the humanity gap. What does that mean, the humanity gap? That is really uh, drawing from the way in which Black bodies are perceived uh, in comparison to non-Black bodies. And so as much as we think about Black bodies as being uh, athletic, as being gifted, as as commodified, uh, there is this humanity gap where they don't see Black bodies as intellectuals. They don't see them as full participants in our society, right? And so much of the humanity gap uh, exists where they don't see uh, blackness as as human. And so that was really um, how I was sort of describing um, the sort of the humanity gap here uh, with respect to to black bodies. I wanna read a piece from your article, Five Ways to Advance Racial Justice in College Sports. You say this ongoing inhumane police terrorism and violence serves as a painful reminder that as a nation, we have an incredible amount of work ahead to adequately respond 
to structural forms of anti-Blackness. This has been going on longer than, than the murders of, of George Floyd and, and countless other, other Black people. And these arguments, uh, these discussions have always been framed as, as a Black problem. That if Black people can pull themselves up by their bootstraps, if they could just simply um, stop resisting the police, right, has been an argument that, that has played out. And it's always framed as a Black problem, when in fact, this is America's problem, right? And until we can see that uh, the way in which they treat, the way in which they um, don't protect Black bodies uh, because of the material benefits uh, that are aligned with that lack of care, that lack of protection, you know, it's, it's going to be a tall order to really disrupt, you know, what many might characterize as, as white supremacy. Right, this idea as long as we can keep black bodies down, right, um, in this sort of racial hierarchy, I will continue to, to benefit as, as a white person, as a person that's part of the dominant group. And so, you know, th this is nothing new. There's no easy solutions. This is sort of multifaceted. Uh, but what I would say is that we can start with thinking about how we can acknowledge, you know, black bodies and how black bodies are not equally at risk. They are seen as exploitable. They are seen as expendable commodities. And so how do we then engage in conversations, real conversations, honest conversations about black people, including black athletic bodies, their histories, their blackness, and what it means to exist as fully human uh, in our society, right? I think these are the kinds of conversations that we tend to shy away from, the, particularly those who are in power. Uh, they fail to acknowledge um, what it means to be a black person in our society. We cannot be colorblind here because the minute we say that race doesn't exist, we can always point to the numbers. What do the outcomes look like in terms of the indu uh, prison industrial complex? What does it look like in terms of the quality of educational experiences for black, brown, and non-black and brown folk, right? What does that look like, right? Why is it playing out to where when you look at, you know, different categories of social prosperity, black and brown tend to be at the bottom um, of those categories, right? What does that mean, right? Um, does it mean that black and brown folks are simply inferior? They're lazy, they're not willing uh, uh, to think about upward mobility, or are there structural impediments at play that play into why we see these uh, disparities across race, across race and gender, across race, gender, sexual uh, orientation, et cetera? When we think about Black collegiate athletes, they make up over 50% of NCAA Division I football teams, over 50% of Division One basketball teams, and, and significantly over in, in both uh, regards. The NCAA and its member institutions have an obligation to go beyond um, the, the talk. They have an obligation to commit to making change. And to create that change, it's going to be uncomfortable. And it's important that it's uncomfortable. And, and not having vague promises but to follow through. 
What do you want to see with the NCAA specifically? The NCAA, the governing body for college athletics, is really mirroring uh, other corporations, other groups, other bodies that exist in, in this space, right? So, so this article was really motivated by statements of solidarity, statements of unity from organizations that popped up after the George Floyd killing, and again, countless others. You had Ben and Jerry, you had Cole Hahn, you had Nike, you had other organizations that said, hey, Black Lives Matter. Uh, we care about, about Black lives. And I think that was a, a good first step um, for these corporations to take. But mm -hmm. there are clear subsequent steps that must be taken, right? So, so in other words, how do we move from these performative statements and you know, commit to an agenda that understands you know, organizational problems in radically different ways, right? Like, like, how do we move from that step? Because it was clear that all these folks from Ben and Jerry's to Nike to Kohan, their body of work, in my view, did not suggest that Black Lives Matter, right? Mm. Uh, so so uh, uh, on what level does, does this actually die down? And so for me, it was really getting out front of this and saying that, well, if you're not racially literate, if you don't have the skill set and competencies to really carry out a radical agenda, and I see radical as compliment, you know, a compliment. Mm -hmm. If you don't have a radical agenda that's really centering Black people, Black conditions, Black experience, if you don't have an agenda that's centering vulnerability, that's centering needs, um, then, then what exactly are you doing? And so I was really trying to lay out some steps that are mm -hmm. very pragmatic that they can follow and at least saying that we're moving beyond these sort of the empty rhetoric and uh, trying to pursue this in a way that's equitable um, and that would certainly raise critical awareness that engages us in a deeper, deeper understanding of these conditions and then have very clear actionable uh, steps going forward. And so what that might look like, you know, number one that we, we, we sort of alluded to already is acknowledging Black bodies, acknowledging their histories, acknowledging that they are fully human, right? To, to me, that is a first step. And then how do you then unpack that with workshops, learning sessions that really talks about Black people centering Black people and how, we, how Black people might be situated within the athletic enterprise in the form of head coaches, in the form of athletic directors, right? In the form of uh, women's coaches, right? Black women uh, serving as, as, even as men's coaches uh, in men's sports, right? Like how do we center that in a way that demonstrates that we're moving in a direction toward equity? And then also in that process, redefining what justice means, right? Because mm. justice so, so often means um, something that doesn't necessarily mean the same thing to those who are most vulnerable. I love that it all points right back to exactly your purpose and that's education. Yeah, and, and you, you think about as well, the structural arrangement of college athletics. Those who develop and enact the policy, those who make the rules, largely coaches, member institutions, administrators, um, they are the ones who benefit most handsomely from the enterprise off the backs of vulnerable, largely black athletes, right? And so 
uh, until we get to a point where those stakeholders, including athletes who make up this enterprise, are part of the decision-making process, I don't have much faith uh, that there'll be equitable experiences for largely Black athletes. Um, if we can think about those who are making the rules, who might be equity-minded and justice-oriented in the way in which they think about policy, I might be able, Stacy, to get excited about that, right? Mm -hmm. but, but too often, those who are making po uh, uh, policy and rules are about amassing power, right? And holding on to that power and not trying to relinquish that power. So, so much of the sort of rulemaking and sort of the day-to-day -day practices that exist, uh, I question because of those who really serve in roles that are all about amassing that power. And so mm -hmm. what is equity, right? Um, what is justice? And how does that, what gets in the way of equity and justice as we think about these vulnerable black athletes? Mm -hmm. And too often it's, it's the sort of power dynamics that are playing out. You know, it's not justice, but, but it's a path toward justice when at least we can start with raising critical awareness around the racialized experiences of black athletes, right? To understand their history. What are some of the racial microaggressions that they go through on a day-to-day -day basis on those campuses, right? That they have to come back, right? Where they feel like there is, they're isolated, where they're unwelcome, right? Where there's only certain pockets on the campus where they feel like they have their sort of reaffirm their own identity, where they have a safe space for learning, right? So what does that mean as a black athlete where you're sort of uh, rejecting the broader academic community of, because of this hostile campus racial climate and all the only areas that you can sort of gravitate to are areas where you feel comfortable, right? Like, so what does that mean in terms of you maximizing your academic talents? What does that mean for you being satisfied on that campus? So just raising awareness and really centering uh, vulnerability, centering the needs and experiences of black students, black athletes, I think is a starting point, right? It's not justice, but it's a process that's moving toward justice. And then the more they can understand and own, right? That, that their experiences, black athlete experiences differ from all others on campus, then they can start to understand and have these sort of aha moments that, yeah, I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that because they were perceived as entitled or privileged athletes that they didn't encounter these hostile climates. So to be able to have these workshops facilitated by those who are racially literate, um, I think is a good starting point. Hopefully that leads to a deeper understanding where, where those largely white academics, uh, administrators, advisors, stakeholders would say, wow, I'd like to read more books on the black athlete on, or the black experience or what does racial equity mean? What does racial justice mean? And so that, that begins a pursuit of a deeper understanding, a deeper knowledge, stretching their knowledge base in ways that they hadn't really thought about, right? Because they are so close to these issues. And if they don't figure out ways to shift their frames of reference, their mental models, all they're doing is doing damage to these black bodies. They're reinforcing these inequities. And so for me, it's about how do we find a space, a learning space 
that begins to shift frames, right? Shift frames in ways where we look at black athletes from a position of strength, right? Uh, a position that they are fully human, right? That they are capable of succeeding academically and athletically, right? Rather than looking at black athletes from a very deficit perspective, believing that they're too aggressive, they're scary, they're monsters, right? They're, they're anti-intellectuals. They're not motivated to be in the classroom. Like these are the kinds of conversations that we must unpack. And we, and we have to own it, right? Particularly for those who are part of the dominant group and are benefiting off the athletic labor of black athletes. And so I've never said either, right? That black athletes, irrespective of the conditions that they have on the ground, irrespective of the ways that they're being treated and, and not protected, they've still been successful in spite of all that. Mm -hmm. So imagine if we had a campus environment that was free of hostility, right? That saw them as fully human, right? That had a representation of coaches and administrators who looked like them, that gave them a sense of community, a sense of belonging, right? Imagine that. Mm. So I think it's really important that as we begin to have these learning sessions, and I'm sure some universities are having these kinds of, uh, of uncomfortable conversations. How do we then reimagine a campus environment that has a representation of folk that look like them, that have these ongoing learning sessions that allow us to address and be proactive instead of responding to things that have been happening to us for, for decades upon decades, right? Mm. And so, so for me, uh, this is nothing new. I'm not surprised of what's being played out here. It's just on some level, it can't just be folk who look like me, academics, activists, scholars, student affairs professionals, uh, parents, community leaders that look like me and be willing to, uh, you know, study up, right? Struggle in this process and eventually figure out how to resist, right? Mm -hmm. These are the kinds of ongoing conversations that I like to have in, in my circle um, and love to have these every day. But the folks who need it the most, the folks that need to stretch their knowledge base the most uh, may read a paper, uh, may get on Fox News and listen to what they have to say. And all they do is perpetuate a vicious cycle. I love what you said, um, the uncomfortable conversations, because I truly believe that's only, you have to have an uncomfortable conversation to truly reach growth. Sometimes you have to be uncomfortable in order to be comfortable. And yes. I think that's, that's really the heart um, of thinking about, you know, issues that people perceive as taboo, like racism or anti-Blackness or other interlocking forms of oppression. You know, those are uncomfortable issues. And, and you know, many who are privileged and who benefit from the current structural arrangement feel that if we don't talk about race, it'll go away, right? If we are race evasive, somehow, it, it, you know, it'll go away. But how do you explain the ongoing outcomes that we see from Black people, the killings at the hands of police officers, the, the disproportionate number of Black and brown people who are incarcerated, oftentimes for, for lesser crimes. Like, how do we explain all, all of that mm -hmm. uh, if, in fact, uh, we shouldn't talk about it? 
right? Yes. We have to talk about it. Mm -hmm. It should be central to our conversations. Uh, and if it's not, uh, we're running in place. What are some other things that you want to talk about or expand on? Or is there anything specific that I didn't ask um, that needs more attention? You know, you know, you know, I'm, I'm excited about what I've seen over the last three months from the NBA players in the bubble that were pushing against racial injustice. And we're clearly thinking about actionable ways in which we can disrupt the current structural arrangement, whether it's uh, encouraging, mobilizing and encouraging more vulnerable communities uh, to vote, right? Which is, which is, which is one of many ways that, that one can be um, a contributor to their com communities, right? Uh, I like the fact that they use their platform uh, to find ways for largely white owners to start to invest more in their communities, right? You know, I saw that as, as an opportunity to really shift the frames of those, that audience that, that watched NBA games. You know, I like the fact that, you know, we saw a, a, a sort of global moment. I wouldn't necessarily call it a movement in the aftermath of George Floyd. That was global, right? We saw folks of diverse backgrounds that were actually supportive of Black people in ways that we hadn't seen before, right? And so I saw this as, as on some level, progress. And so I've, I've been excited about that. I'm excited about the Black students on my own campus and on other campuses that, that in the aftermath of this sort of racial reckoning are demanding change, uh, are demanding that we uh, take a closer look at our campus police officers that are saying that we need to take a closer look at the gross underrepresentation of black faculty, black students, black staff on our campus. We need to take a closer look, particularly at a time when black people are experiencing these hostile environments, mental health issues, mm -hmm. and how well we are supporting Black people in this moment, mm. right? And some campuses have met that moment and are actively working uh, to execute a sound plan to address the demands of Black students, while other campuses are sitting on their hands and would rather slow rock the process by saying, let's put together an ad hoc committee, mm. right? Or let's, let, let's hire a diversity officer, right? And, and those really don't move the needle in ways that we've been talking about for years. We know the issues, we, we, we have the empirical research, right? We have enough evidence to say, it's time to move forward. There's no time to delay by putting together these committees to talk about things that we already know about. So I'm optimistic, right? Because a lot of these movements happen uh, because of our young folks, but because of our young folks are willing uh, to make those sacrifices, right? You know, I, I even point to, to the, the football players, the Pac-12 players that, that came out even during this global, you know, public health crisis and said, we're not gonna play, right? Unless there are some clear procedures that we put in place that's gonna protect us. 
right? There shouldn't be any backlash if we decide to opt out of playing. We still should be able to keep our scholarships, right? Uh, but but what, what can you do that would give us the confidence that in the absence of a vaccine, of rapid, you know, testing and tracing, how can you ensure us that this is not just a stunt where you all can capitalize off of our bodies that you already perceive as, you know, um, expendable, right? How can you ensure us that, that, that we're going to win from this process as well, right? So, so I love the courageousness. I, I, I love the unity. I love the collective decision to say that we're not going to play. And, you know, we, they really forced the hand of those who are making the rules. And so I've been excited about that. But I also understand that, as we've talked about early on, that athletes aren't protected. There is no union, right? There is no protection if you have a one-year renewable scholarship where a coach can um, non-renew your scholarship for any reason. Whether you're a 4.0 athlete, they can non-renew your scholarship if they feel like you're not adhering to their demands, uh, their philosophy, their ideas, their ways of thinking and knowing, right? And so these are the kinds of things that I'm thinking about where they just don't have the leverage. Some of them do it, um, and, and you know I commend them for that. But many of them are not protected. That's why you don't see uh, these sort of moments playing out longer um, and why the public sometimes doesn't understand these first-generation, low-income athletes who certainly don't have that support. If they do it, they understand the consequences, and that's even a stronger stance that they're taking, knowing that they're jeopardizing probably something that they've been dreaming about and living about, sleeping about um, for, for years upon years. And so, you know, I'm excited uh, to see those steps forward, but, but ultimately, Stacy, it's going to require uh, those who are benefiting from the current arrangement to step up and say, I'm willing to relinquish some of that power. I'm willing to learn and understand what it means to be a black athlete. I'm, I'm willing to try to shift my frames to a more equity lens and say, um, we need to do a better job of, of ensuring the protections and fairly compensating athletes, whether it's financially, medically, academically. Because I really don't feel that black athletes are educationally reimbursed, right? Many of them are graduating around 50% rate, right? It's not that they don't want to graduate. It's that once their eligibility is up, uh, the university typically has no more use for them. And so, um, you know, it's less likely they'll come back to continue their education, um, you know, after it's all said and done. Mm -mm -mm. Eddie Como, you are a gem. And the work that you're doing is opening eyes. It's opening ears. It's uh, softening hearts. It is educating and it's going to impact a lasting change i know that it will and i stand with you in all of that oh that 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 google is a lifesaver uh so <laughs> uh, you can always uh you know google me to find my email address uh i'm on social media yeah how can we find you on social media social media uh just my name eddie eddie como e-d-d-i-e-c-o-m-e-a-u-x i'm on, on twitter um not too active on facebook but uh yeah email address UCR email address or, or social media, uh, probably the best way to get, get, get at me.
Uh, this Thank was fun. You. Enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. Okay. So nice to meet you. I Likewise. truly appreciate it. We're available on your favorite directories, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, iHeart, and TuneIn. You can find us at Believe.com and at Believe Sports. Follow me at SwissBaby24 on Instagram and Twitter and Stacy at Stacy Pates on both platforms as well. Interested in advertising on this show? Please contact Believe at Believe.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Believe in Sparks. I'm Stacy Pates for Sydney Weiss. This has been a presentation of BetOnline.ag. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.